0: Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for coming. It's a a real pleasure for me to uh, participate in a program on uh, issues very vital to the 2016 election and beyond with uh, my uh, distinguished colleague, uh, Rick Hassan. Um, Rick, as you may know, is one of the nation's leading experts on election law. He's written a textbook, he's written um, popular books that are for regular folks as well. Um, Rick is a, a gra- an honors graduate of UC Berkeley and has a JD, an MA, and a PhD um, from UCLA in political science. Um, he practiced as an appellate lawyer for a while in Los Angeles, first taught at Chicago Kent Law School. And when I made his acquaintance, he was teaching at Loyola Law School. And then, fortunately, several years ago, we snared Rick from Loyola. Um, I can say, um, in all honesty, during the period of uh, the, about six or seven weeks, following the uh, 2000 election when the litigation was going on over who was going to become the president of the united states al gore or george bush i was literally joined at the hip with rick on a daily basis we must have talked three times a day this is when rick had an election law list served that was a sort of a, I would call a predecessor to his fabulous election law blog. Put up a lot of vital information every day that was um, really important to journalists around the country as well as to other people that were following that hotly contested and very consequential uh, litigation. Um, as all of you I, I think understand, um, voting is probably perhaps the most fundamental right. Um, in a democracy. You can't have a democracy without a free uh, voting system, but voting was a a very hard-won right in this country for a number of of people, uh, particularly in the South. And uh, people in this country died uh, seeking their right to vote, particularly as you probably have heard of, three civil rights workers in the summer of 1964 were murdered trying to help people gain the right to vote. So just to lead off the discussion, I would like to ask Rick to talk a little bit about what happened legislatively after those murders to kind of lead into the current voting rights that people have in this country. Sure, and
1: great to see a lot of old faces and new faces. And I just want to take issue with uh, one thing that uh, Henry said, which was he contrasted, I don't know if you picked up on this, textbooks that you read with what regular people read. So (laughs) I'll just leave that as what he's saying about you. So uh, uh, it is true that especially in a place like California where it is very easy to register and vote that we take the right to vote for granted. It's one of the reasons I think that voter turnout in California is abysmally low. That and the fact that we're a heavily democratic state and there's often not a lot of competition on the ballot. Uh, I just spoke to a, a middle school yesterday where my kids used to go to school and I asked them if they could name uh, one of the two candidates running for Senate, I, I won't ask you. I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> but not one could. And and you know, a Senator is such an important position, and yet, you know, all the attention is at the top of the ticket. Um, the right to vote didn't come to most people so easily. It was. It it took uh, not just uh, litigation, but it took uh, the passage of the uh, 14th and 15th Amendments and the 19th Amendment to enfranchise uh, African-Americans and to enfranchise women and then as as uh, Henry points out there was the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act and even after that uh, uh, voting in some parts of the country especially in the South was difficult it took the Supreme Court interpreting the Voting Rights Act in a very creative way to give it some teeth and then in 1982 when things seemed to have stalled in terms of voting rights, it took uh, Congress uh, uh, um, uh, to strengthen the Voting Rights Act in 1982 much to the dismay of the point person for uh, President Reagan at the time who was fighting against the amendment, a guy named John Roberts, uh, who had a very strong position against the strengthening of the Voting Rights Act. And that of course comes back in 2013 when the Supreme Court in a case called Shelby County versus Holder a case you will probably hear about or have heard about in your classes where the court strikes down a key part of the Voting Rights Act 2013 Shelby County versus Holder the Supreme Court says that the federal the part of the the Federal Voting Rights Act which says that jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination in voting had to get approval from the federal government before they made any changes in their voting uh, rules And they had to show that the changes would not make protected minority voters worse off. Uh, The uh, uh, chief justice writes an opinion for five uh, members of the Supreme Court over a dissent of four saying that that provision was no longer constitutional. And since then there's been uh, uh, a retrenchment and a a reemergence of restrictive voting rules. It's not only, but especially in places that were covered under this part of the Voting Rights
0: Act, including Texas and North Carolina. Right. So... Let's go back to 2000 again for just a second. Uh, Besides the the big controversy over what happened in Florida, the hanging chads and which votes would be counted and so on and so forth, the entire mechanism of voting in this country seemed to be called into question. There were problems in a number of states and uh, there was legislation passed. So just in terms of the technical aspects of of knowing that your vote's going to count if you actually vote, where do you think we are now? Well, let me first try and make you and
1: me feel old. Okay. How many of you have a conscious memory of the 2000 presidential election being contested? Okay, oh, so that's good. All right, a few more, Joe, good. A few more, Joe, good. Uh, a few more ye- good to know our memories are still working. Uh, uh, a few more years and that uh, won't be the case. You know, so I used to come into my class, my election law class and joke that there was a contested election in, two, uh, in Florida. You may have heard about it and now I say it with a straight face because not everybody has. Um, but just on the technical side of things, uh, you can come by my office, 3800D, anytime my doors open, come on in. I have one of those Florida voting machines with the punch cards and the hanging chads and I used to carry it to class and there used to be these little pieces of paper, the chad that used to fall out on my way. Uh, now there's no more left in there. <laughs> My wife got it for me on eBay. It's not the machine with the butterfly ballot, which you may have heard about. <laughs> so you know about this? That was where they put names on both sides and people voted in the middle. And you had all of these uh, what were called Jews for Buchanan voters, uh, b- people in uh, Palm Beach County who thought they were pushing for Al Gore, but actually voted for Pat Buchanan. Um, turns out there were lots of problems with how we uh, run our elections on the technical side. Um, Something that probably cost more votes than the butterfly ballot was in Duval County they had a lot of candidates on the ballot for president and the instructions uh, on the uh, sample ballot said be sure to vote every page. So 26,000 people had their votes for president thrown out because they voted for a president on one page and then on another page. Just the technical way that we run our votes, that's actually improved. We now think that there are about a million fewer lost votes because of technical problems than there were before. Part of that is because Congress came up with a pot of money to fix the voting machines. uh, And part of that is people paying more attention to these things. Uh, But we still see problems with ballot design. We see problems with technology. And now there's been a big warning that, um, and we'll get into this, uh, with some of these electronic voting machines, um, it, there's concern about the machines being hacked or vote totals being changed. I think some of those concerns are overblown, but it really does show that you can't just take for granted that what people mark on the paper or what they uh, punch on the electronic voting machine is actually
0: going to get accurately recorded. Well, since you brought up hacking, just to, why don't you talk a little bit about that and what, wh- whether you think how real you think the concerns are? Sure. So.
1: Most uh, voting in this country is not done electronically. The, kind of the, what's seen as the gold standard now is pencil and paper and uh, Scantron forms, which you're all very familiar with. Um, they're not perfect, but they're a lot better than some of the other alternatives. Um, it is true that even those optically scanned ballots are counted with computers, software that counts the, the markings. But with those, we can audit, right? So you can look and make sure. You can take a pile of the ballots and count them and see if they actually match. The place where there's concern is electronic voting machines that have no paper trails. So we've had a few situations where there have been recounts, and the recount essentially consists of pushing the button again and seeing the same number. Um, And so I think the consensus among most people who follow this is that's a bad system, that you need to have a paper backup in order to, get these things out. That said, um, there's no evidence that anyone's tried to hack those machines in this election. All of the hacking that we've heard about, uh, it's been you know, the DNC's emails. That's not gonna affect uh, how the votes are counted. It might affect how people think about the Democrats, but not gonna affect that. Uh, and uh, also there uh, has been attempts to steal voter registration lists in Arizona and in a few other places. I don't think it's a huge danger, but I am concerned because, um, Uh, Pennsylvania is one of the states, uh, battleground state that has electronic voting machines without a paper trail. And it's a place where Donald Trump has said that the election could be rigged. And so I worry that even if the election is not rigged, that people can point to those machines without a paper trail and say it. And there's no way to formally be able to disprove it because, uh, there's no
0: paper record. So Trump has talked, on several occasions about the notion of the election being rigged what exactly does it mean to rig an election it's not just potentially with a machine is it so I define
1: rigging election rigging as where uh, eligible voters are improperly excluded from voting or ineligible voters are allowed to vote or um, people are allowed to vote or some people are allowed to vote multiple times Uh, or the counting that is done does not accurately reflect the count. So those are, I think, the four categories of uh, what would be a rigged election. Uh, Trump, unsurprisingly, does not use the word with any scientific precision. Uh, He's claimed the superdelegates, for example, rigged the election, uh, the Democratic nomination for Hillary Clinton. Uh, That's not how I'd use the word rigged. It's also not true that it, it didn't take the superdelegates to get Clinton... Uh, over the top on right. the Democratic side, but what he has said about the general election, in particularly about Pennsylvania, is that he's worried about these are his words certain areas of Pennsylvania where the vote could be rigged. You know what I'm talking about. That that's not me saying that. That's him saying that. You know what I'm talking about. This seems to be code word for watch the urban African American districts where they're go- there's going to be vote fraud. And there's a belief among some people. Uh, on the right that uh, there's a massive amount of voting voter fraud going on. It's being done by Democrats. It's labor unions and minorities getting together to steal the vote from uh, everyone else. And so that's pretty much what I think he means by it. Uh, and uh, I was very glad at the very end of the debate, um, you may remember Lester Holt asked a question, will you accept the results of the election? And Hillary Clinton says yes and Donald Trump starts talking about Maybe there were people that should have been deported from the country, but then they were made citizens, maybe 800, maybe 1,800, I don't know if you remember this. And then he said, when pressed again by Holt, um, if she wins, I will support her, which at first made me um, a little more relaxed about this, but not too relaxed about it, because if she wins, uh, that presupposes that he would accept that she would win if it's a close election. Maybe he doesn't, and points to these kinds of things. So. Um, Uh, I think there's still concern. The other thing is um, right after he made the comments that the election was rigged about a month ago he put on his website a uh, form you could fill out that you could join his citizen brigade or whatever it was called to make sure the voting is not rigged. And there's a problem we've had historically in the country of of, uh, voters being intimidated. So we've had situation, for example, in New Jersey in the 1980s and Louisiana, armed (coughs) police in front of polling stations in predominantly minority areas. And it was so bad that the Democratic National Committee sued the Republican National Committee claiming that this was voter intimidation, violating the Voting Rights Act and various Civil Rights Act. And the DNC and the RNC settled that suit with a consent decree that says the RNC basically (coughs) cannot engage in this kind of activity, and that expires next year, unless it's extended by the court. And there's a question as to whether Trump's activities would count, whether Trump would count as an agent of the RNC for these purposes, and so people are watching that. And so it's possible that uh, even if Trump doesn't organize anything, the Trump supporters might be going to the polls, trying to make sure the voting's not rigged, and in the process, make it so that eligible voters cannot vote, thereby rigging the process. So I'm concerned about
0: that. Along the same line, one of the states that passed um, a law in the aftermath of a Shelby County decision that looked like it was gonna make voting more difficult for certain groups of people um, was Texas. It was a very restrictive law and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, which is probably the most conservative federal courts of, of appeal in the United States, struck the law down which seemed to open things up, but in the aftermath, it seems like Texas has been doing some other things that might discourage people from voting.
1: Uh, Well, the Texas story is an interesting one. Texas actually passed a strict voter ID law uh, before Shelby County, but it was blocked by the Justice Department, by this preclearance process, and then two hours after Shelby County was decided, Texas announced it was going to enforce its law. So, voter ID is a very big topic. We could probably spend the whole hour talking about it, but let me just say briefly, a voter ID is kind of a misnomer because uh, everyone has some kind of way of identifying themselves. The question is which kinds of identifications are okay. So in Texas, if you have a concealed weapons permit, that's okay. If you have a student ID from the University of Texas, that's not okay, right? So it depends on what kind of ID counts. And there's a very narrow class of IDs and I was just, I was in Austin speaking this weekend on a panel and uh, uh, there was a Republican state senator on the panel. He said, you need ID to fly, you need ID to buy alcohol, so why not for voting? Well, it turns out you actually don't need ID to fly. You just go through a more restrictive um, screening process. But also, in terms of constitutional rights, the question is, well, what is this law meant to do? And if what it's meant to do is to stop people from impersonating other people at the polling place, that doesn't really seem to be that necessary. And in fact, there have been um, fewer than 10 cases out of tens of millions of ballots cast of anyone caught trying to, in Texas, anyone caught trying to impersonate a, another voter. I'll give you an example to, so you know what kind of vast conspiracies are going on with this. Uh, a, um, uh, it was election day, and uh, dad was out of town, so mom took Junior, who had the same name as dad, who was 16, to vote for dad. Dad was away on a business trip. Dad comes home early from the business trip before he gets home, stops off at the polling place to vote, seeing he's already voted, they do an investigation, mom's arrested. Okay, so this is not uh, kind of uh, an organized way to steal elections. It's people doing stupid things, doing illegal things. But uh, for my 2012 book, I tried to find a single example in the country from the 1980s going forward where an election has been stolen by uh, impersonation fraud. And I couldn't find a single example anywhere in the country. But I could find examples every single year from the 80s onward of absentee ballot fraud. That's where, for example, your vote by mail ballot comes and someone steals it out of your mailbox. That happens occasionally. More common in South Texas is my absentee ballot comes, somebody pays me $20 for it, and I give it to them. Now, that kind of fraud happens, but Texas's law didn't address that. So we have a, a situation where there's documented actual fraud that's led to prosecutions, that's led actually to. Elections being redone, not addressed by the Texas legislature, but a non-problem addressed by the Texas legislature. So uh, a trial court struck that law down, said it was passed with a discriminatory intent, and had a discriminatory effect under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Case went up to the Fifth Circuit, as uh, you said, one of the most conservative uh, appellate courts. A conservative panel said, the law's okay, but you need to soften it for people who have a big problem getting IDs like people who are in rural areas and are maybe a hundred miles from the DMV where they would have to get at their own expense to get a voter ID. Or someone born without a birth certificate. We had a situation in Wisconsin of someone born in a concentration camp who was denied an ID. Or a woman who lacked arms and even though she brought her daughter out of the power of attorney, they wouldn't give her the ID because she couldn't sign the form. So, you know, uh, not so easy to get these IDs. So the Fifth Circuit said you need to craft a Uh, a softening. Um, That went all the way to the full Fifth Circuit. The full Fifth Circuit somewhat surprisingly agreed and sent it back to the trial court and said for this election come up with some rules and Texas agreed to some rules and everything looked great for this election. Texas is going to the Supreme Court to try and get them to overturn this but then it turns out that Texas uh, is not properly advertising even though they promised to how they're going to um, Uh, allow people without one of these seven accepted forms of ID to be able to vote. So so now the trial judge has said, all right, every time you want to put out something, Texas, that explains how the voting uh, is going to work, you need to get approval from the plaintiffs. So it's kind of preclearance brought back in for this case because the trial judge is so upset about this. Meanwhile, you have the city clerk in Houston saying that anyone who tries to vote with an affidavit who lacks the right ID, that person is going to be investigated for voter fraud, so.
0: Which would, would potentially certainly intimidate somebody that, uh, right?
1: Yes, and so the other piece of this, the other piece of what happened in, te- in the Fifth Circuit case was the, the trial court found that the uh, Texas passed its law with racially discriminatory intent. The Fifth Circuit said some of the evidence you looked at was improper to infer intent, take another look and there's no doubt in my mind what this judge is going to find. She's going to find that there's discriminatory intent, and then it's going to go back to the Fifth Circuit for another round of this. If there's a finding of discriminatory intent, two things. One, the entire law could be thrown out. That's what the Fourth Circuit just did in North Carolina. And the second thing that could happen, there's a part of the Voting Rights Act that says, if you're found to have engaged in intentional racial discrimination, you could be, back, be put back under federal uh, oversight for up to 10 years. So, right. the case is far from over. It's, still going on and this is kind of the next stage of where things are. And the fact that Texas is dragging its feet after it agreed to these changes, that's evidence that plaintiffs are writing down now to make their case as to why Texas should be put back under federal uh, preclearance approval for up to 10 more years.
0: Right. Well, explain one other thing about what's going on there, which is I know states, have a lot of autonomy in how they administer elections. Localities have some autonomy in how they administer elections. But if you think about the ID, uh, that the notion that a gun permit is an acceptable form of identification and that a student identification from a university in Texas is not acceptable, I mean, even how would that even pass a rational basis test for being acceptable?
1: Well, one uh, point is that, um, that has been made in defense of this is that concealed weapons permits have expiration dates and that student IDs do not. And so presumably a student ID could be passed on. This happened in Wisconsin, and so the University of Wisconsin started putting expiration dates on their student IDs just so that the students could, could vote. But you're right. But um, <coughs> there are really two defenses that have been made in both Texas and North Carolina. North Carolina passed... A law that not only imposed a strict ID but did a bunch of other things. One defense is this is uh, you know, this is our good government choice as to how we think we should run our elections, promote confidence, uh, uh, prevent voter fraud. In the Supreme Court in 2008, in a case called Crawford versus Marion County Election Board, said um, you don't need proof of actual voter fraud to be able to have a general, generally applicable voter ID law. The court left open the question if the law burdens some specific groups of people whether they get an exemption. But, uh, so, so one way that the states have been trying to defend themselves is saying, this is a good government, or we're making a choice. So for example, North Carolina rolled back early voting from 17 days, which the Democratic legislature had put in place, down to 10 days. And they say, why should Democrats be able to make it easy for people to vote, but we can't make it hard for people to vote? Uh, so uh, one question is, you know, how, who makes that public policy and how is that done? But the other question is, uh, and it's sometimes said, this isn't discrimination against minorities or students. This is discrimination against Democrats. As though that's okay. And <laughs> the reason that's apparently okay is because the court in the context of gerrymandering, how you draw the lines for congressional districts or state or local districts, has said, we can't police when partisanship is taken too much into account in, Um, drawing district lines. And analogizing from those cases, some people have said, well, if all we're doing is trying to craft the rules in a partisan way, that's okay. And I think that issue ultimately is going to have to get tested at the Supreme Court. It's just nonsensical to me that we would distinguish Democrats from minority voters in a place like Texas, where if you are um, African American in Texas, you're over 90 percent Democrat to Republican, and if you're Hispanic in Texas, it's like two-thirds. And so there's such an overlap that to say, as Texas did in one of its briefs, that a law that discriminates against Democrats is okay, even if it has an incidental—these are Texas words—not an incidental effect on minority voters. There's no incidental effect. There's a reason that the Democratic Party is favored by minority voters. It's because the Democratic Party puts forward um, platforms that that minority voters like, right? So it's not a coincidence. And so that's got to be disentangled. But the way the courts have done it so far is they've drawn a distinction between if you're doing it and it's about race, then you're in trouble. If you're doing it about party, it might be okay.
0: Okay, so we've, we've had a lot of talk over the past decade about voter fraud, quote, voter fraud. And a number of states, as you said, have done things, particularly voter I- photo ID laws and a variety of other things that are, that are at least on the surface potentially an attempt to restrict voting. You mentioned a couple of moments ago a Supreme Court case called Crawford which was decided in 2008. I distinctly remember talking to you the day that the Seventh Circuit decided that case a couple of years earlier and since that time a quite interesting thing has happened. The judge who was involved in that case, Richard Posner, one of the leading conservative judges in the United States, a Seventh Circuit judge, a law professor, has said, has said that he very much regrets his vote in that case and that he's seen very little evidence of voter fraud since then and he thinks you know that he's he's become a big skeptic about this issue could you talk a little bit about that
1: yes well i remember when judge posner wrote his decision i i had an op-ed in the washington post urging the supreme court to take the case and that was i'm sure it didn't have an effect but that was <laughs> a, a dumb position for me to take because <laughs> the wor- the worst thing before the roberts court while justice scalia was still on it was to put a voting rights case before the Supreme Court. The last place you want to be to defend voting rights was the Roberts Supreme Court. Um, And they just took a bad opinion and made it worse in some ways. I'm going to disagree with the a couple of things you said. First, call Posner a conservative. He's a, he's very quirky kind of conservative. Fine. He's libertarian. I'll he's buy not that. he's not Edith Jones. Right. Oh, he's definitely not. He's not, not uh, Justice Thomas. Absolutely. Right. So, he's kind of a free thinker and does some strange uh, things that, like, you know, out of ideological character. But
0: um, but appointed by a Republican president. Yes, appointed
1: yeah. by Ronald Reagan. Um, you know, he's, I like to say, he's written more books than I've read. I mean, the guy is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but the other thing I want to take issue with is he, uh, a- after being pushed on this, he did not say he regretted his vote in that case. What he said was that there was not enough evidence in that case to draw a conclusion that this was about voter suppression. But since then, the yeah. evidence is in, and these laws are more about making it harder for people to vote, especially voters tend to vote Democratic than they are about trying to prevent voter fraud. Uh, Justice Stevens also has expressed some regret. So Crawford, only law students uh, uh, would appreciate this. In Crawford, this will not be on the exam, so don't <laughs> stop writing. Uh, in Crawford, the court divided 3-3-3. So there were three justices who said the law's unconstitutional. There were three justices Justice Scalia, Alito, and Thomas, the three most conservative justices, who said, if the law is not a big burden for um, uh, most people, it's constitutional for everybody. So even if a few people face a big burden, we can't start looking at individuals and seeing if their rights are being violated. That's going to be too cumbersome in our elections. So three on one side, three on the other. The group in the middle was Stevens, uh, Roberts, and Kennedy. And they took the position, for most people, it's really not a big deal to get um, an ID. And voter fraud was a problem. Justice Stevens, you know, was old guy on the court, cited example of voter fraud from 1868. Boss Tweed. He also cited one possible impersonation vote in a 2004 governor's race in Washington. But he said, facial challenge, no good, because for most people, it's not a big deal to produce your driver's license or your uh, passport or whatever. But for some people, it could be a big deal. We're leaving open the possibility of an as-applied challenge. And so while Justice Stevens has said he now has regret about that case, I don't believe Justice Stevens. I don't think he ever believed what he wrote in that opinion, and that it was a strategic vote to prevent a 5-4 to four decision, which would have been the Scalia decision, that no as-applied challenges. He was able to keep the center. And so I, you know, uh, I think that he kind of saw what was coming didn't want to say it, but that's how I read that 3-3-3 split. And so what's happened since then is, we talked about how the Fifth Circuit softened the law. That's happening all over the country. Courts are off- offering these softening, kind of split the baby approaches. So for example, in South Carolina, in order to avoid a voting rights lawsuit, South Carolina said, if you have a reasonable impediment to voting, you just fill out this affidavit. But it turns out in practice, they don't tell anybody that. It's very hard to know that you can vote without an ID all the advertising is vote with ID and so I think the courts are getting a wrong impression that if they just say make it easier that actually happens and there's a distinction between the law in the books and the law on the ground and that's all of what's being litigated right now
0: right well laws generally are not self executed you need somebody to uh You need somebody to enforce them. But a few moments ago, you talked about the lack of any solid evidence in Texas of voter fraud. I think you said there were hardly any cases out of millions. And the last study I read on this nationally was uh, written by a chap, I believe you're quite familiar with Justin Levitt, which I said that there were out of thousands and mean millions and millions that there were 31 cases of impersonation total that had been established you think that's an accurate number and what is that and if so what does that say about the notion that there's rampant voter fraud that should be you know prompting laws
1: yeah i certainly think there are many more than 31 cases okay so what Justin did Justin's now, he's a professor at Loyola, but now he's working at the Justice Department as the head voting person, Uh, um, so he he took over for Pam Carlin, who's going to come in a few weeks, and if you want to hear somebody brilliant and entertaining, you should come here, Pam Carlin. She's really the best. Uh, Justin counted up actual cases that have been documented. Now, surely there are more cases that have not been documented, so it was 31 out of however many hundreds of millions of votes that have been cast. I don't think that's a good way to figure out how many, how much of this is actually going on. A better way is to count up all the prosecutions for um, election crimes in the country. And there was a group, a student journalist organization called News 21 out of um, Arizona State at the University of Arizona. They looked at all election crimes uh, in the period from 2000 to uh, where I think it was 2012 when they counted. and. Uh, If you looked at the number of prosecutions for impersonation fraud, it was below one-tenth of 1%. And if you looked at the prosecutions for absentee ballot fraud, it was among the highest. I think it was the highest. Maybe it was in the 30s, I I may not be remembering that right. So voter fraud happens, it's rare, but it doesn't happen in the way that voter ID laws prevent it. If you really cared about voter fraud, the number one thing should be no more absentee ballots unless you have a good excuse, like you're sick or you're disabled or you're overseas And you can't get to the polling place. So you might ask, well, why don't we do that if we're really concerned about voter fraud? And the answer is people like uh, voting by mail and we're willing to take the risk of some crime in order to have convenience. Okay, right? It's a trade off. Uh, It turns out that most voter fraud that, that people catch. like James O'Keefe, if you know who this guy is. He's uh, one of these guys that goes around trying to sting people. Uh, is committed by the people doing the stings. So uh, it's, it's very, very rare, uh, and the kind that a voter ID prevents is extremely rare. More than 31, though, no doubt.
0: Right. So what would you say was the state of voting rights and the actual administration of elections in the state of California right now?
1: Well... California is not competitive, so um, people pay less attention. There have been some problems in California with how our elections have been administered. There's a problem with how our campaign finance laws have been administered. There are lots of problems in California, but they're below the surface. If you vote an absentee ballot, um, your chances of it being thrown out historically have been pretty high. And in parts of California, because you didn't fill it out right. You didn't sign it in the right place or you didn't bubble in something you're supposed to bubble in. There are millions of votes that are not being counted in our elections and until recently you wouldn't have been notified that your vote would not have been counted. And so now we're finally moving to election day registration in California, same day registration. You're gonna be able to, suppose you've moved or you've never voted, you'll be able to register and vote the same day, electronic database. They're trying to make improvements but I think that part of the reason things have not improved more is because California is not competitive, people are not paying so much attention. And I should point out something. We're talking about the Republicans uh, in states like North Carolina and Texas passing laws that help Republicans, or at least are seen, perceived to help Republicans. I think the amount of voter suppression that takes place from these laws is much, much, much less than Democrats claim. But let me just talk about self-interest on the part of Democrats in Oregon and now in California, we're moving towards automatic voter registration, meaning that as soon as you become a California resident, you're gonna be automatically be registered to vote unless you opt out. You think Democrats did that only because they think it's a good idea and, and enfranchisement is great? It's because they know the same thing that Republicans know. Voters who are less likely to register, voters who are younger, who are poorer, who are minorities, are much more likely to vote for Democrats. That's why Democrats make it easier to vote and Republicans make it harder to vote. Every time I say that I get accused of false equivalents and no, Democrats are fighting the good fight, and uh maybe some of them are, but it's it seems like a coincidence that it's only the blue states that are passing these laws and only the red states that are passing the other laws, and they both seem to work in the interest of the majority party in the legislature.
0: Over and beyond the question of who benefits, what Is the problem? Would you say? Since I gather you have some problems with what's being done in California and Oregon, do you have an equity problem, a technical problem? Well,
1: I I would like to say at the end of my book I make a proposal. I think we should have a, a automatic voter registration across the United States. We have a uniform system, national voter ID, along with automatic voter registration and a thumbprint, if you want it. So if you forget your ID, you won't forget your thumb. You can just put your, you put your thumb down. And this is a proposal that has united everyone. Everyone hates it. De- <laughs> de- Democrats hate it because they don't like an ID. Uh, Republicans hate it because it's automatic voter registration. It's going to uh, increase the, uh, uh, those who can vote. Privacy advocates hate it because it's a thumbprint. Uh, you know, People who worry about all, uh, you know, uh, identity theft. Uh, everybody hates it. But I think that is the best way to go. We are one of the few democracies that runs our national elections on a sub-state level, right? Not even on a state level. So we don't run one election on election day. We're going to run 14,000 elections on election day. There are 14,000 separate electoral jurisdictions in the United States, each with their own rules. And we didn't talk about this about Florida, because you told me to talk about the technical stuff. In almost every place, I want to say almost every place, 38 states, partisan election officials make the rules. And even if you are trying to be the fairest you can, when you are a partisan election official, it's really difficult to be objective. So here's a great statistic. The, um, uh, the ballots from Florida, the ones with the, is this a vote for Gore, is it a vote for Bush, is it a pregnant chat, is it a hanging chat, is it a dimple chat, um, those ballots were public records in Florida. So after the election, they were transported to uh, an organization in uh, Illinois called uh, NORC. And uh, a consortium of news organizations worked with NORC to recount those ballots, to figure out who really won Florida, which is something we'll never know because the margin of error in how we ran the election greatly exceeds the margin of victory. But it turns out that the people hired by NORC a few months after the election, if they were Democrats, they were much more likely to find votes for Gore than if they were Republicans. (laughs) Everybody, myself included, we all could not see through in the height of, a, um, uh, of such a partisan moment. It is very difficult to be objective, but making someone be a partisan election official is really um, the worst position to be in. But it's going to be much worse in this election if it comes down to Clinton versus Trump instead of Bush versus Gore before the Supreme Court. Why is that? Because we have a 4-4 Supreme Court and in the last election we had conflicting nobody focused on well henry focused on it but most people didn't focus on we had cases going on in the 11th circuit the, the federal court pretty conservative court at that, that time
0: covers florida among other states that
1: were in conflict with what the florida supreme court was saying right. yes. now the good thing about the supreme court is they can resolve all of that but not when you have a supreme court that's deadlocked so in that north carolina case i told you about about is there are their voting rules going to be um thrown out North Carolina went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court divided four to four on whether or not to reverse on an emergency basis. If it's a Clinton versus Trump and we have, you know, and when it's a 4-4, the lower court's ruling stands. So you could have, say it's in Ohio, uh, you, know, you could have, well, Ohio's not a good example because the Sixth Circuit is more conservative and the Ohio Supreme Court, but you could have some state where, oh, Florida would still be the one, where you, have, um, you could have the Florida Supreme Court, Democratic Supreme Court going one way, the 11th Circuit going another way, and no way to resolve it uh, at the court level anyway.
0: Or you could have it in North Carolina with a more liberal Fourth Circuit than it was That's before right. Obama That's right. was the president, and their opinion about what North Carolina did was scathing. They said that they basically precision targeted you know, in a way that would uh, disenfranchise Black people, it's one of the most scathing opinions yes, of that kind that was I've not, seen. That
1: was not on bunk. That was no, just
0: no, a panel. no. I know it was panel, but even but, yes. but it was but that it was it was very yep. it was very scathing. Yep. So, and let's finish. I guess the next tawdry chapter. If the Supreme Court were to defy four to four, or so is there a possibility that the House of Representatives could get uh, involved in this vote eventually?
1: Sure, and we could also have a two sixty nine two sixty nine split of the Electoral College vote and we could have a faithless elector, someone who decides not to vote for Trump or Clinton. We could end up with, I was just talking about this yesterday, we could end up with President Tim Kaine. That's really a possibility. Uh, How would that happen? Well if the House, under the 12th Amendment, if the House can't uh, pick, give anyone a majority of the Electoral College votes and you know know how the voting works in the House?
0: You should explain
1: that. <laughs> uh, yeah, if nobody gets if nobody gets above uh, uh, 270 270 or above, then um, the House has a vote where each state delegation gets one vote. That's right. Wyoming gets the same number of votes as California, one each, and they can only vote for th- the top three candidates. Right, and then if they can't reach anything, it is going to be up to the uh, it's going to be up to the Senate. To pick a vice president, Senate. Each senator gets a vote, so it's not each state, but each senator gets a vote. And maybe Democrat. And this happens on January 3rd. So maybe Democrats take back the Senate. Maybe they don't. If they do, Tim Kaine can be chosen. If they don't, Mike Pence can be chosen. And the 12th Amendment says, if the Congress cannot agree, the, the House cannot agree, then the vice president becomes the temporary president. This was in Veep, or somebody told me. <laughs> oh, spoiler alert! I haven't seen it. But apparently, <laughs> so, so uh, the vice president could become. Uh, The president, uh, uh, the new vice president, could become the at least temporary president until the impasse is broken. But if there are claims of faithless electors, so someone who has been listed as an elector for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump and decides I'm not going to vote for that person, I'm not I'm going to cast my vote for someone else, um, that might raise a judicial question. It might be a political question. Could end up in the courts. Supreme Court could divide. Yeah, it's. uh, you know, I'll, just, I'll recite the election administrator's prayer, <laughs> which is, Lord, let this election not be close. Right. The, the last thing you want is a close election when things are so contested. You want a blowout, so that way all the rigging and hacking and all the things that people say uh, will be uh, ignored, or mostly ignored. And if you think that that stuff's not out there every election, go to uh, ObamaVoterFraud.com or ObamaVoterFraud.blogspot.com. I know this because they... Always well, we cites something I wrote, um, so <laughs> I'm not sure why that is. But uh, yeah, no, there are claims that uh, uh, you know that er, uh, you can go back to, to from 2000 on, and you will find people who will argue that the election was rigged. And it's not just Republicans making these claims. Democrats believe that uh, Ohio John, John, was rigged, that and Ohio was rigged. John Kerry actually won that state, and the 2004. Evidence it, yeah. The evidence for that is that the exit polls didn't match up. Well, exit polls are not really all that predictive; they serve a different purpose, but um, there are some people that believe that kind of stuff. So, if it's, if it's really close, it could be a disaster. The good news is uh, it's not likely to be that close, right? Absolutely close. You think about Florida. At one point, the Florida margin between Bush and Gore was down to 537 votes out of about 6 million votes cast. So, that's really, really absolutely close. Chances of that happening again are pretty small. It'd have to be in a state whose electoral college votes matter for the outcome. Um, and it would, ha- you know, it would have to be on absolute numbers. So when Kerry was behind in 2004 by about 100,000 votes the morning after election day, his lawyers got together and said there's no way right. we're gonna find enough of a problem that's gonna make up 100,000 votes. So just like you should worry about the small chance of a nuclear meltdown at San Onofre, you should worry about the small chance of an electoral meltdown, right? Same kind of thing, very sm- small risk of a catastrophic event.
0: Okay. That, that put you all at ease, right? No, no, that's. But let's talk about something else. About all of the talk about, you know, the possibility of something being rigged or so on and so forth. What What do you think is the impact of this on democracy? That seems that. I mean, I guess I'll just ask you sort of a leading question. It seems like some people are doing this as part of an attempt to erode faith in government.
1: Objection, leading. Okay. Um,
0: <laughs> Objection-leading, uh, yes. <laughs>
1: uh, one thing we've seen, I, mean, I certainly think that Trump is saying some of this stuff to get uh, people to, to delegitimize the, the potential of, of him losing. Um, but one thing we know from public opinion polls is if you ask people uh, uh, in a recent close election if they thought the election was done fairly, if their votes were counted accurately, if they were on the winning side of a close election, they were much more likely to believe the election (laughs) was done fairly than if they are on the losing side, and that flips. Um, So Democrats didn't believe that the 2000 election was conducted very fairly. Republicans in 2004 in uh, the governor's race didn't believe that was done fairly, where a recount led to uh, the Democrat beating the Republican when it looked like it was gonna be the other way around. Um, Only, Uh, The figure was something like 29% of Trump supporters are very confident or um, confident that their votes are gonna be fairly and accurately counted. So it does certainly, the message seems to be resonating. But uh, if Trump narrowly wins in a place, uh, and there's a credible claim to be made by uh, Clinton people that it was rigged, people will believe it. This is another kind of like one of those uh, Test yourself moments. It's like someone said to me yesterday: um, uh, uh, if, if, if Donald Trump was the Democratic nominee and Ted Cruz was the Republican nominee, how would you vote? He <laughs> asked this in a class of a hundred <laughs> people, uh, and no, none of them claimed to be Trump supporters. And almost, uh, he said, almost three quarters of them said they would vote for Trump. So, kind of situational ethics and. Uh, 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 how you view the electoral process depends a lot on, you know, where you are relative to uh, your own values. Right.
0: Let's have some questions.
1: Uh, the first part is Is A, no, she will not recuse herself. <laughs> and she would likely point to Justice Scalia's statement in the Cheney, I don't know if you know this whole thing about Dick Cheney was, uh, there was a case where Dick Cheney was the defendant and they had just gone duck hunting And one of the things that Scalia said in his decision where he explained why he did not recuse himself is, we're a Supreme Court where we can't replace ourselves so easily and um, therefore we have an extra obligation to sit on a case unless it's clear that there's a conflict and then he said there was no conflict. I can't imagine that she would recuse herself in what would be such a case, especially because we know what she thinks of Donald Trump because she told us. (laughs) Whether she should, that's a hard question. uh, I, I think that it would be a very. This is a very credible claim to be made that she should recuse herself. For you, you don't want presidential candidates <laughs> making. You don't want you don't want Supreme Court justices making statements about who should win any election, much less the presidency. I think it was a big uh, stumble by her, and uh, you know, I don't think she should have said it, and she eventually apologized for it. But uh, you know, I think what her thinking was is, you know. Kind of like how Bernie Sanders, you know, these uh, these people, these uh, older progressives, become kind of icons to millennials. And she thought, here I am, I'm going to, you know, get millennials listening why they need to oppose Trump. And she, when you're on the Supreme Court, you tend to think your ego is kind of, you know, (coughs) you tend to think your importance is great because it is great. um, And I think she just overstepped the line.
0: Other, Jonathan.
1: So you want to repeat the question? Go ahead. So it's about whether or not the um, the election was rigged against Bernie Sanders the the primary season, based on the hacks of the DNC's emails, which showed basically that Clinton was um, being supported by many in the DNC, the DNC leadership, when the DNC took the position that they were uh, officially neutral between Clinton and Sanders. I don't know that I would call that rigged. I would leave rigged for situations of um, uh, those examples I gave where eligible voters can't vote or anything like that. Uh, I, and I, I, I wouldn't have had a problem if the DNC came out and said, we're supporting Clinton over Sanders. A part, political party can take that position. And especially because Sanders was not a Democrat. He's never been a, you know, a Democrat, he's been independent. The problem was, as always, it's the cover-up, right? It's the lie, it's saying we're going to be, uh, uh, that we're gonna be um, uh, fair and neutral and not be fair and neutral. So I, I have a problem with that. I'm not really surprised by it because of course they wanted Hillary Clinton because she was part of the you know Democratic uh, apparatus for decades, so that, that's not a surprise at all. Um, did I, do I think it affected anything? I think the DNC was not particularly effective in the primary season. I don't think anyone thought, oh, Clinton, Sanders, well what does Debbie Wasserman Schultz think? (laughs) I'm going to go with what she says, you know. uh, So so I don't think it really had much of an effect on anything, but I do think that it shows this. Uh, But, you know, uh, people are worried that there's going to be something else that comes out, that that, uh, maybe it's the Russians, maybe it's a 400-pound guy sitting on a bed, I don't know. (laughs) uh, Sitting on some additional information And that information is going to, um, you know, be the October surprise. Well, if anybody, if you're watching on the internet, um, early voting's already started in a number of states. Uh, My daughter's overseas. She's already voted. People are voting, so if you got the October surprise, now's the time. People are already voting. Um, I don't know if there's anything else to come out. uh, But if this is the worst that comes out, I can't imagine now people saying Clinton or Trump. I was really going with Clinton, but now that I know that the DNC was, you know, favoring her, I'm going with Trump. So I really don't think it's going to have much of an effect. Um, I, I do think, though, that th- th- it's legitimate to be concerned that foreign governments might be trying to influence our elections. And uh, that's something that uh, I hope after the election there could be some bipartisan uh, investigation uh, and, and better steps to be taken because, uh, you know, we can mess up our own democracy. We don't need somebody else to do it for us. <laughs>
0: Other questions? So you're back here.
1: That's a great question. So uh, it, it, what would happen in terms of uh, from this election about superdelegates or the Electoral College? Uh, electoral College, I think, is off the table. I don't think there's going to be. It's just impo- it's so difficult to um, amend the Constitution, especially when the small states would suffer. right? All If we had a national popular vote, the candidates would spend all their time in California, Texas, New York, and Florida. They wouldn't be in Ohio and Pennsylvania, and you know, nobody would care about Colorado and Wyoming. So I don't think that's ever happening. On superdelegates, it's, this is gonna be very interesting. Uh, as part of the Sanders uh, you know, kumbaya effect, they decided <laughs> that they're going to lessen the role of superdelegates. So Democrats are gonna make superdelegates less important. That's one of the things that Sanders pushed for. Republicans, on the other hand, if Trump loses, If Trump wins, then I don't think anything changes. If Trump loses, I think there's going to be a push to put in superdelegates so that they could actually try to block someone like Trump next time. Um, I mean, and and looking a little bit further in the future, if Trump loses, I expect we're going to see the Republican Party break apart where there's going to be a um, a centrist, a, a more centrist moderate party that's also going to attract the support of some Democrats who are more to the right of the Democratic Party. And there's gonna be a right-wing populist group that will eventually, you know, Tea Party, Trump supporters, that will eventually fall off. That's what I think, but you know, that's, I'm talking like 10, 20 years in the future. But I think you know, some, if Trump loses and the process could well lead to Trump again, the Republican Party is gonna to have to think about what they're gonna do, because Trump's not going away. He could be a factor in the next election, too, if, uh, if he loses
0: or Trump or Trumpism.
1: That's right. Somebody, I mean, imagine Trump, but someone who's uh, willing to prepare for debates and doesn't have, you know, 20 years of, or 30 years of Howard Stern tapes and things that could be thrown against him.
0: Yeah. One more, yes. Uh,
1: So the question is, should the primaries, uh, could the primaries be changed if they're starting in places that are maybe not the most relevant? I would say the better word is not representative. So the people in Iowa and New Hampshire, overwhelmingly white, rural, not necessarily representing lots of Americans, right? Representing some but not all. There have been all kinds of proposals for rotating regional primaries and shaking things up. I think that would be a great idea. It's just that every presidential candidate who comes in now under the existing rules, they pledge. You know, you're Ted Cruz, you spend six months in Iowa. Iowa's always going to be first. And so it's a kind of a how do you get beyond it? I mean. You'd think after the 2000 election that would have caused us to rethink a lot of things, but in a lot of ways, aside from the technology, things are pretty much the way they were. And on primaries, things have not really changed much at all,
0: except for the fact that before the, the caucus system came in, New Hampshire had the first primary. So Iowa, as the first state, is a relatively recent phenomenon, maybe the last 40 years right. or so. Right. But,
1: but yes, so you're talking 40 years. Years. Still, right. Yes. Right.
0: Yeah. And what do you think about the idea of having a uh, a possibility of of a national primary day?
1: I think a national primary day is a bad idea because you want to see how the candidates develop over time. The proposal I like is the rotating regional primary. You divide the country into four or five or six parts, and then you rotate in the election. So one election season, the West goes first. The next election season, the South goes first. And so everyone gets that, and then you could campaign in those areas. And I mean, I think that would be a fair way to do it, but, you know... I also wouldn't have designed an electoral college where it could divide evenly. So we've got a lot of problems how we run our elections.
0: On that note, thank you very much, Rick Hassan. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.